We here at Abundant Life, we are what we would call an equipping church. This isn't some big show where you come to see a person and you get all hyped up and that's it. No, we believe that the Bay, which has 10 million people and only two to three percent are Christian, and naturally not all those 10 million people can fit in our church. What we've got to have are an army of people who come to our church, who get what they need so that they can walk out into their society and all the spheres of their influence and be who God's called them to be. That's why our tagline here at Abundant Life is literally a better you for a better world. We make this promise. You hang in there with us. You'll be bettered, but not just so that you can be bettered, but you'll be bettered so that your neighbors can be bettered. Your co-workers can be bettered. Your families can be bettered. Students in your classroom can be bettered. A better you for a better world. I think it's really great that um, everyone here is so diverse and comes from different backgrounds because I've never been to a church where um, there's so many different people all coming to unite for one thing and that's just really amazing to see. I joined a growth group a little over a year ago and I think it's been one of the uh, most life-changing things that has happened. Um, I went through a personally difficult time and just having basically a second family here in the Bay has been so necessary. I've just, I've loved them and they have just loved on me and um, just I've felt the love of Jesus through them. I'd been going to the church for a few years, and but was more of a consumer for a while, and now I'm, I'm really, really happy to be to say that I'm getting more involved and in being more of a contributor, uh, being involved with the worship team, and, and really trying to just contribute to, to this great community that we have here. Grace is something that, frankly, in, in my life, I've had a, a little bit of a hard time understanding. I think Pastor Brian has a book about that, that I've been working, working, Look at me, God, I, I need to do this, I need to do that to, in order to please you. But I am, I am pleasing to God because I am under his grace. And because I'm under his grace, then I wanna be pleasing for him and serve him and honor him with my life. And being having your flesh and, your, and live in the spirit, sometimes I still fall into that. But God's grace, I'm learning as I get older, is greater. And just resting and abiding in that is what it really is about being a Christian. Going is part of me. I have to go. Um, whether it's, you know, bringing something that I've learned to the youth group or whether it's going abroad. Um, I think that we all need to respond to what God calls us to. And when we don't, I, I feel unsatisfied. You know, I feel like I'm not fulfilling what God has called me to do. And there's a discomfort there that I think is healthy. What I love about ALCF is that when we gather and worship, it's people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. You know, we'll go from playing a guitar, acoustic guitar with flip-flops to one of our chocolate brothers playing the B3 Hammond organ, you know? I love that because after all, we're getting ready for heaven, right? That's what heaven's gonna be like. And so that's what our sound is and that's who we will continue to be. People who gather in worship from every nation and every tribe lifting up the name of Jesus.
my prayer for Abundant Life is that we would become a house of prayer. Totally committed, totally submitted, and always seeking God's will, seeking his mind, and his way of life for us. This is ALCF. 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 This is Abundant Life. This is ALCF. Since it is Family Sunday, uh, I brought my oldest daughter. She's going to read the scripture for today. I asked her to do... I asked her to do the sermon, but she wasn't so high on that idea. You ready? Hold, oh, hold on. Where are we? Um, oh, Luke 1, 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. You can go sit down. Pray with me. And now, God, we invite you into this space in a special way. We know that you are here, but we ask that in this moment you would fill the room with your spirit. We pray that you would bless uh, this teaching on your word. God, we're about to learn about a really unlikely candidate who was called into mission for you. And that's kind of what we all are, God. No one more so than me right now. And I pray that you would um, fill my mouth with your words. I pray that anything I've prepared that is not correct, that you would strike it from my memory. And, And anything I haven't, that you have for these, your people today, I pray that you would give it to me in the moment. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you have done. God, we, um, it, it has become so common, uh, the way Christmas has been commercialized. But God, revive in us an awe of the fact that the creator became like the creation in order to reconcile us to you. We thank you for this time, and we thank you for this place, and we thank you for your blessings in our life. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. 
You can be seated. Good morning. That was not bad. Uh, how was Thanksgiving? Good, good. The, everyone's still recovering from eating too much. Me too. Uh, I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm excited to be here. Uh, it is, as we've said several times now, and not to beat the, the horse that's already dead, this is the first Sunday of Advent for us, and that is a really, really exciting season. It is a total privilege and a total joy for me to get to be here and open God's word with you all today. What, what is Advent? What does it mean? Simply an arrival. And so Advent is the season in the Christian church that we remember the arrival of Jesus Christ on earth. The King of kings, Lord of lords, becoming like us, his creation, incarnating in human flesh, coming to earth as a baby, as the key event in God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Let us not lose the wonder of what this season really means. So this is the first Sunday of Advent, and I'm excited to get going. Any, uh, a word to the children in here. We are glad that you are here. I have many of you myself, and so I'm thrilled to have you in the room with us. Uh, I want you to be listening to my sermon. There are two times that I'm going to talk about the Lord of the Rings. I want to see if you can hear what I'm saying when it comes to the Lord of the Rings, so pay attention. I'll give you a hint. The first one is coming up right now. Lord of the Rings. One of my all-time favorite stories, and I know that there are a lot of folks in here who would nod their head and agree. I did not actually read the books until I was in college, but I devoured all three of them in the space of a week. Uh, why is that story so compelling? Uh, I, there are a lot of reasons, but I think one of them is this. Lord of the Rings presents this, this fantasy world called Middle-earth, which has everything that you would want a fantasy world to have. Kings and queens and dragons and wizards and goblins and trolls and dwarves and elves and magic. But in the midst of all of this fantasy land, the central characters are what? Hobbits. Hobbits are small creatures that live in a place called the Shire, where nothing bad ever happens. They live in houses that are dug out of the earth and surrounded by kings and battles and heroes their favorite things to do are garden and cook and throw dinner parties. But as the story of the Lord of the Rings unfolds, we find out that there's this ring, this all-powerful ring that needs to be destroyed. The only place it can be destroyed is in Mount Doom. And all you need to know is that it's called Mount Doom. And you know that you don't want to go there. And it's the hobbits who are the ones who take the ring on this impossible mission. Why is that story so compelling? Because of everyone in Middle-earth. They are the most unlikely candidates to be the heroes. And there's something about that that draws us in and that we love. That is very similar to what we have seen in our text for today. If you or I were to write the story of the king of creation, the lord of glory, coming into his creation... I can make a pretty safe bet that this is not the story that we would write. It is very unlikely. It is an unexpected way for the God of the universe to enter into his creation. And yet I think that's why it's so compelling. And if you'll hang with me for the next 30 minutes or so, all the parents with children just rolled their eyes. 
2025, um, we are going to see that, that it is, in fact, it is the unlikeliness of this story that teaches us something significant about God and something significant about ourselves as well. So our text today is Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. You will recognize that we have picked up Luke's gospel uh, not at the beginning. And I just, we need to know what has come before our text because it helps set up what we're going to see in our text. So let me summarize for that for you briefly. As the curtain rises on Luke's gospel, we are met by a priest in Israel named Zechariah. We're told that he has a wife, that they are both old, that they are righteous before God, and that his wife Elizabeth is barren. She's unable to have children. Zechariah is in the temple performing his priestly duties, and the angel Gabriel, the exact same angel who visits Mary in our texts, visits him, and he tells him, Zechariah, your wife is going to become pregnant, and the child that she gives birth to is going to be a great leader in Israel and turn many people to God. And Zechariah says, really? And the angel says, you're going to be mute. You're not going to be able to speak until it happens because you doubted that what I said was true. Now, some context for that is if we look back to the Old Testament, we see a, a number of instances where God has helped God has miraculously, helped is not the right word, God has miraculously allowed women who were barren to become pregnant. The first one is Sarah, who's the wife of Abraham, the great father of the nation of Israel. She's elderly. She's not able to have children. God tells her she's going to have a baby. That baby is Isaac. And all the promises of God's covenant with Abraham and his redemption plan for humanity reside in that miracle child, Isaac. A little bit later, we meet a man named Manoah. This is in the book of Judges. We're told that he has a wife who's barren. An angel visits them, tells them, Manoah, your wife is going to have a child. That child ends up being Samson, who lives a far from perfect life, but is a great savior for the nation of Israel from their enemies, the Philistines. And then finally, we meet a woman named Hannah. Again, you guessed it. She's barren, and she's praying to God in the temple, and God hears her prayer, answers it, gives her a son, and that son is Samuel, and he is one of the great priests and prophets of the Old Testament. So I don't want you to miss this. When we get to the Gospel of Luke, God has been silent for over 400 years. The God who used to speak to his people, he spoke to Moses face to face. And then for a, for a century, spoke to his people through angels and through prophets, has been silent for over 400 years. And so I want you to feel the excitement that someone would have felt when they begin to hear or read Luke's Gospel and they hear that an old barren woman has become pregnant. As an aside, this is why Zechariah is struck mute, because he's a priest. His whole job was to teach the history of Israel to its people. If anyone should have known this is the way God works, it was him. But he doubted. And so as we enter into this story, feel the anticipation and the excitement, especially for someone who's an Israelite, who has known the promises and the prophecies of a savior for Israel, but for generations, God has been silent. As they would say in Narnia, Aslan is on the move. These opening verses tell us that God is doing something. And that brings us to the story of Mary and Gabriel. Before we dive into this, I just want to share with you a quote that I found as I was reading this, or as I was studying this passage. Uh, I don't want us to lose the wonder of what this passage really means because we are so familiar with the Christmas story. One of the scholars I read said this, we have in these verses the announcement 
of the most marvelous event that ever happened in this world, the incarnation and birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a passage which we should always read with mingled wonder, love, and praise. And so, because of the commercialization of Christmas, it has lost, the story has, um, has been cleaned up. The grit has been washed off of it. And as we dive into this passage this morning, I want us to do our best to enter into this scene, to feel what Mary would have been feeling, to see what she would have been seeing, and, and if at all possible, to think about what Mary would have been thinking about. It has been, it's easy to be desensitized to this. So let's do our best to enter into the narrative. Meet me back again in verse 26. <clears throat> in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So as we enter into this story, we see a few things right off the bat. When Luke tells us that Nazareth is a city of Galilee, that tells us that Nazareth is an obscure place. The fact that he has to tell his readers it's in Galilee means that most of them wouldn't have known where it was if he didn't say it was in Galilee. If I tell you I'm from Chicago, most of you will know what that is, where it is, will know a little bit about it, and even as far away as we are here in California, a lot of you will have been to Chicago. If I tell you I'm from Hudson, that means nothing to virtually any of you except maybe my wife and kids who are sitting down here on the front row. If I tell you I'm from Hudson, it's in Ohio, now you have a context. Now you can make some educated assumptions about what kind of place Hudson might be because you know what the climate's like, you know what the topography is like. By virtue of the fact that Luke finds it necessary to place Nazareth in Galilee, it means for people that were even from Galilee, if he had just said Nazareth, their response would have been, never heard of it. So we're in an obscure place that very few people even know where it is. And then look at verse 27. The angel is sent to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Now we can learn a lot about Mary just from these two words, virgin and betrothed. The way that marriage worked in ancient Israel is this. A girl between the ages of 12 and 14 would have been betrothed to a Jewish boy or man of about 18. Betrothal is like our engagement today, except it's a little bit more binding. You actually had to have a divorce to break a betrothal. It would last for a year, at, at, during which time the girl would still live with her family, then it would be consummated in a wedding after a year, and the groom would take the bride home, literally, to live with his family. So we know that we're in a backwater town of northern Israel, and this angel has showed up to, at best, barely a teenage girl, maybe even a preteen. One more thing that's not in our text, but I think will shed some light on the, on the circumstances of this story. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, describes the, the Messiah. He describes Jesus. And one of the things he says there is he had no beauty that we should desire him. As one of my pastor friends likes to say, where do you think he got those average looks? Now, 
I'm not trying to read anything into the text that's not there, but I think we can make a safe assumption that Mary was not the prom queen. She was probably not even on the homecoming court. This is a plain young girl in a backwater town in Israel. This is not how I would have written the story of salvation, but it's how God wrote it. And what this is showing us is that God calls unlikely people. Let's look now at verses 28 and 29. The angel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now, I found this, as I started to study this text, I found this really interesting. Why is Mary troubled at the saying? It would be one thing if it said Mary was troubled because she was talking to an angel. That would, that would make sense. But the text is really clear. It says she is troubled by what the angel is saying. What the angel says is, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Why is this troubling? Again, I think we need some Old Testament context, and it will shed a lot of light on what is going on here. The Old Testament is full of stories of God calling people into service for him. Dozens of them. There are three in particular that match almost exactly the form of the text we are looking at today. God's call of Moses in Exodus 3, God's call of Gideon in Judges 6, and God's call of the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1. In all three of those instances, God or an angel shows up to those men, says, I have, I have a job for you, I have a mission for you, and then in all three of those instances, he says this, I am with you. The exact same thing that the angel Gabriel says to Mary. Now, maybe Mary knew those stories. Maybe she didn't. But I think in just the way the angel has greeted Mary, she suspects that this is more than just some kind of announcement. Just as God called Moses and Gideon and Jeremiah into service for him, God is calling Mary into service for him. This is not just a birth announcement. This is a call on Mary's life. It's a little bit like when I'm home with my kids and I'm in another room and I want one of them to come to me. If I call them by using their nickname, if I say Maggie or Howie, they know they can probably finish whatever page they're reading in their book or clean up the toys that they're playing with. Nope, that would never happen. And take a little bit of time in coming to see what I want, because at best I have a question for them, at worst maybe I have a chore. If I use the same tone, but I call them from the other room and I say, Margaret Elizabeth or Howard Gary, they know they better drop what they're doing and run. Now don't read that into the text. Mary is not in trouble. But my point is, just by what I say, I can communicate something is coming after this and they can anticipate what that's going to be. And I think that's why Mary is troubled at this greeting. She recognizes that as unlikely a candidate as she is, God is calling her to something. God calls unlikely people. And he does this throughout scripture. The Bible is full of Marys. Think about Abraham. He was elderly. His wife was elderly. God called him. He was an idol worshiper. God called him to leave his homeland, go to a new land, and father a new nation. Think of Moses. He was an 80-something-year-old former murderer who was herding sheep in the desert. And God called him to confront the most powerful man in the world 
and rescue his people out of slavery. Think about King David. David was so unassuming that his dad didn't even include him in the lineup when Samuel came to discern who God's choice for king was. And yet David went on to become the greatest king in the history of Israel. Think of the apostles. The apostles were a ragtag crew of uneducated fishermen and professional swindlers. And they turned the Roman world upside down with their message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about Saul, who became the apostle Paul. Don't ever, don't ever miss this when you are reading the New Testament. When you read a passage like 1 Corinthians 13 that Paul wrote, saying that love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy. Remember, the apostle Paul was an ISIS terrorist of his day. He was killing people because of what they believed. And God got a hold of his life, called him into mission, and he brought the message of Jesus to the known world. God calls unlikely people, and it happens throughout Scripture. And, and the good news, the amazing news for us in that is that we're all Marys. We are all unlikely candidates to be called by God. Now, that's not a popular sentiment in our country, nor in the Bay in particular. Pastor Brian says it all the time, and he says it, uh, he's spot on. He says it just right. We live in a meritocracy. We live in a culture that rewards you for what you can do, for how you perform, for how good you look, for how smart you are, for what you bring to the table. But that is not how the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God operates under a premise called grace. And the idea of grace is all over this text. When, when the angel calls Mary, O favored one, the Greek word there is the same word for grace. And he's not saying Mary's full of grace. He's saying Mary has received grace. And so have all of us because we're all Marys. This, this country and, and this area and even this church is full of people who have gone to the finest universities, have performed at the top of their class, work at the most profitable companies in the most lucrative industries in the world. And yet the gospel tells us that we are all sinners in God's eyes, desperately in need of salvation. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so this passage is full of good news for us because we are all Mary. And yet God could use someone like Mary. And God can use someone like you and I. The first part of this passage tells us God calls unlikely people. Now I want to move to the second part. Uh, meet me in verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor. There it is again. You have found favor, grace, with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So if the first part of this passage is telling us that God calls unlikely people, this middle part is telling us that God calls unlikely people into mission for him. God calls unlikely people into mission for him. We've hit pause on the narrative, let's hit play and re-enter the story that we're studying. So discerning that Mary is troubled, the angel says, don't be afraid, Mary for you have found favor with God. And now he gives her her mission. Verse 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Now, if we're Mary, what are we thinking at this point? No, okay. Not, I always wanted to be a mom. 
I, I'm engaged, I'm betrothed, so it's totally conceivable that Joseph and I could have a son, and I would love to have a son. So that's great news. Keep going. Next thing the angel tells her is, you shall call his name Jesus. Now, even this is not that big of a deal. Jesus was a very common name back then. It was like the angel saying, and you'll call his name Mike. So I'm going to have a son, and I'm going to name him Mike. Great. This is, this is where the ante gets upped, though. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. Okay, now we got to pause here. He will be great, fine. But you need to understand that the Semitic thrust, the Jewish thrust of called wasn't about someone's name, it was about their status. That could also be translated, he will be regarded as. So when the angel says he will be called the son of the most high, what he is saying, his position he will be regarded as the son of the most high God. Okay, that ups, that, that, that's a different story. Now, the rest of these two verses, uh, we could do a whole sermon series on just these two verses. We're not going to, and we don't have time to unpack it today. But suffice it to say, the rest of those two verses simply underscore what the, the angel has just told her, that you're about to carry the son of God in your womb. The Lord God, this is in the second half of 32, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. There were two great covenants in the Old Testament, one with Abraham, one with David. Any Jewish person would have known those. This is a clear allusion to the Savior that was promised from David's line. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. All three of those things, just really clear allusions to Old Testament promises and prophecies of a coming Savior, a coming Messiah for Israel. It just is underscoring the fact that Gabriel just told her, that she's about to carry the Son of God in her womb. God calls unlikely people, and he calls them into mission for him. And this is, again, how God works throughout the whole Bible. All of those people that I described, Abraham, Moses, David, the apostles, Paul, they all had a mission. They all had a purpose that God called them into. And so my question for us today, my question for you, is what is your mission? If you are in Christ, if you, have, if you have committed your life to the Lord, if he has called you to himself, what is your mission? Now, I suspect for a lot of us, the answer to that question is this. You know that emoji? It's my favorite one. <laughs> and I'm sympathetic to that because I've been there. I think it's very easy for us in the church to see people who are in full-time ministry as having a calling on their life. But for those who are in the marketplace or the academy or government or in school or, or in, at home with their kids, do they really have a call on their life? Do they have a mission? I have good news. I, I, I remember so clearly wrestling with this very question just about four years ago. What is, what is God's will for my life? What is my mission? What has God called me to? What, is, what has he made me to do? And in the midst of this, I read a book, uh, or I was reading a book. It's called Radical. It's by a pastor named David Platt. It is a wonderful book. Highly recommend it. I will never forget the moment that I read what I'm about to share with you. I remember where I was sitting. I remember where Beth was sitting, what she was doing. I'm wrestling, wrestling, wrestling. God, what did you make me to do? What did you call me to do? What should I be doing with my life? And at the end of one of the chapters in that book, I don't remember which chapter it is, uh, he, Platt says, as a pastor... 
I'm constantly getting people coming to me asking, how do I discern God's will for my life? And he said, I'll I'll never forget it because I use it all the time. He said, I have good news. This is what I tell them. I have good news. God's will is known. The question is not, can you discern it? The question is, will you obey it? So listen to me, Abundant Life. There is utmost freedom in that. God has made it clear in his word what his will is. He, he said it in the Old Testament. Jesus affirms it in the, two, in the new. Excuse me. It is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That is God's will for your life. And so the freedom in that is that you don't need to go to the mission field. You don't need to go to seminary to live on mission for God. You can love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself at Google, at Apple, at Facebook, at Stanford, at San Jose State University, or in your living room. What is your mission? What is your mission? God calls unlikely people into service, into mission for him. What is your mission? Now, I want to pause here and I want to speak to those of us who are here today who maybe wouldn't call ourselves Christians. And, and I suspect that there are some of you here who are, are thinking, I don't, I don't know what this is all about. I don't know about this God thing. I certainly don't know whether this story about an angel visiting a woman and, and telling her she's going to get pregnant is true. And I just want to speak to you from my own experience. This idea that God calls people who are unlikely, like me, and gives them a mission is one of the most compelling reasons I think that Christianity is true. Because I have experienced in my own life that not because I'm a pastor, But because I'm a child of God, I have a purpose. I have a mission. I am living for something that is bigger than myself. And isn't that what we all long for? Don't we all long to wake up in the morning and recognize that it's not just a grind it, grind it, grind it out until you die life, but that there's a purpose, that there's a meaning, that there is a reason for what you're going through? God calls people who are unlikely, and he calls them into mission for him. Now, as we look at the last part of this text, we're going to see that not only does he call unlikely people into mission, but God empowers those he calls to fulfill their mission. God empowers those he calls to fulfill their mission. Pick me up uh, in verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, What? And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Literal translation, since I have never known a man. Now, now she's not doubting. This is not like Zechariah in the previous story. The reality of what Gabriel is telling her, I think, is, is starting to take root. And I suspect she's starting to think in this moment, Joseph may not be a part of this. So she's saying, I need some clarity here, Gabriel. I, I, I recognize how this works. And I just want to make sure you know, I've never, I, I've never been with a man. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Oh boy. The angel confirms what it seems like she's suspecting. Joseph is not a part of this plan. This is going to be through God via the Holy Spirit. And I want us to pause here for a minute and I want us to feel the weight of this because of all the things that gets cleaned up in the Christmas story, I think this is it. 
this is an honor and shame culture. Preteen girls didn't become pregnant outside of marriage. First of all, they got married too early. And secondly, there was no birth control. And so the risk of, I know there are children here, the risk of messing around was too great. You didn't become pregnant before you got married. She is recognizing in this moment that this mission that God is calling her to is going to be very costly. There is a cost associated with this mission. She stands not only to just be completely humiliated personally, but think about the story of the woman caught in adultery who the religious leaders want to stone to death. There's, there's a chance she's thinking, I, I could be killed for this. And not only that, it's not just her, but she's got a family and friends and loved ones. And this is a small town where everybody knows everything. So it's not just her that's going to be humiliated. She's going to be in great shame on her family and her friends and her loved ones. And what about Joseph? Most likely this was an arranged marriage. But, but the rest of Luke and the other gospel writers tell us Joseph was a good man. So in all likelihood, she felt probably pretty good that Joseph was the guy she was going to marry. And she's probably thinking, what's Joseph going to think? What's he going to say? What's he going to do? This is going to be a costly mission. And it is in that context that I want us to read her response in verse 38. It is recognizing that the cost that this mission will, will bear on her. When she says in verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That's amazing. One scholar says this is the greatest example of faith in the entire Bible. Mary has counted the cost, and in so many words, she has said, I'm all in. I'll do it. How can she say that? How does a 13-year-old girl say that? Because she's special? No, because God is special. Because of verse 37. After the angel describes to Mary what's going to happen, he tells her about Elizabeth, verse 36. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Now, presumably Mary knows about Elizabeth, knows who she is, knows that she's old and hasn't been able to have children. And then the angel tells her, for nothing will be impossible with God. That's an underliner. For nothing will be impossible with God. Now, the near application of that is the previous verse. Mary, as evidence of that what I'm telling you is true, your relative Elizabeth is pregnant. But the far application of that verse is because of what I'm telling you, because God is with you, verse 28, you can do this. The wording in verse 37 matches exactly, or almost exactly, Genesis 18.14 when it's translated into Greek. Genesis 18.14 is when uh, God has told Abraham and Sarah that Sarah's about to have a baby or is going to conceive. Sarah laughs sarcastically and says, how could this possibly be? And look at what Genesis 18.14 says. Is anything too hard for the Lord? It could also be translated as anything too wonderful for the Lord. Exact same wording as verse 37 of our text, for nothing will be impossible with God. So I, I, it is not inconceivable to think that as the angel tells Mary, nothing will be impossible with God, she knows the history of her people. 
And she thinks back to Abraham and Sarah and thinks, if God could make Sarah pregnant and father a nation through Abraham, he can do this for me. If God could give Manoah and his wife Samson, he can do this. If God could give Hannah, Samuel, if God could make Elizabeth pregnant, nothing's impossible with God. Now, in our text, we don't know how long it took between the angels saying nothing's impossible with God and Mary saying, I'm all in, I'll do it. And if I can circle back to the, to the Lord of the Rings, one of the decisive scenes in that movie, really right at, towards the beginning, is the leaders of all the good guys, the humans and the elves and the dwarves and the hobbits and the wizard, are at a council, and they've got the ring out in front of them, and they're talking about what needs to happen to this ring. And the king of the elves tells them what no one wants to hear, and that's that the ring can only be destroyed where it was created, in the fires that burn in the heart of, of Mordor as the reality of the impossibility of that mission, as the reality that it is, a, it is a suicide mission descends on that group, they just evolve into shouting and arguing and finger pointing. And the camera cuts to Frodo, the little hobbit Frodo, and the sound of the arguing kind of dies down, and you can see him staring off into the distance. And I just imagine Mary doing the same thing. Frodo is counting the cost of what this mission is going to mean, and Mary is doing the same thing. And Frodo stands up and he says, the unlikeliest of any of them to say, I'll do it. Frodo stands up and he says, I'll do it. I'll take the ring to Mordor. And just like that, Mary stands up after counting the cost and says, I'll do it. I'm all in. I'm the servant of the Lord. Literal translation, I'm the slave of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What this, what this section of this passage is telling us is that God empowers those he calls to fulfill their mission. When he tells her in verse 33 that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, that image of overshadowing is the image of God from the Old Testament and his glory cloud, which led the Israelites through the desert which filled the tabernacle with his presence, which filled the temple, the Holy of Holies, with his presence. And so what uh, N.T. Wright says is the, the experience that Mary has right here is the experience for all of us as Christians moving forward. The Holy Spirit working inside and the power of God surrounding to fulfill her mission. So if we can circle back to the question, what is your mission? I don't know what your mission is. For some of you, I suspect that, that God has been calling you to make a major life change. That, that you have felt the spirit leading you to, to quit your job or to move. But as you have counted the cost, it has seemed too high. It has been too big of a risk, too much of a leap of faith. But what God is telling us in this passage is that you can do it because of his spirit inside of you and his power surrounding you. For others of us, it's the opposite. I suspect for others of us, we want nothing more than to quit our job or to move away. But we hear the Spirit leading us to stay, even though we don't want to, because the cost of staying seems too high. But you can do it. You can fulfill your mission because you have the Spirit of God inside of you and the power of God surrounding you. For others of you, God is calling you to stay in school 
even though you want to quit. The degree seems too much of a challenge. It's too far away. The cost has been too high, but you can fulfill your mission because you have the spirit of God inside of you and the power of God surrounding you. Some of you, God is calling, some of you, your mission is to care for a sick spouse or an elderly parent or a sick child and you're exhausted and it seems like it's too much and all you want is a rest. But take from this passage encouragement that you can fulfill your mission because God is with you, the spirit of God inside of you and the power of God surrounding you. God calls unlikely people. He calls them into mission and he empowers them to fulfill their mission. The more I've studied Mary over the last few weeks, the more I have recognized that it's a shame that we only spend time with her once a year. Mary is an exemplary figure in scripture. Not because she was special, but because God is special. And because she she was willing to count the cost and step out in faith for the mission that God had for her. The prophet Isaiah, the, and the, the, the band can come as I, as I wrap up. The prophet Isaiah, in, in Isaiah chapter 7, predicts the very events that we are looking at in this passage. The prophet Isaiah is speaking to, to the king of Israel, King Ahaz, and he says this, Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Do you know what Emmanuel means? It means God is with us. And so watch this. It gets circular, but try and hang with me. The angel is telling Mary that God is with you. You can do this because you're favored. You have grace and because God is with you. And what he's enabling her to do is literally carry God is with us in her womb. Jesus, Jesus is not called Emmanuel. He is regarded as Emmanuel. It is his status. It is his position. Jesus is the physical embodiment of God with us. Jesus came to earth. He, he, he was born a baby in the most unlikely of circumstances. He lived a perfect life. He lived a sinless life. He died a death on a cross to pay a penalty for sin that we couldn't pay and then raised to life again and in doing so defeated death. And in that defeat of death, he allowed us to be reconciled to God so that we now can receive what Mary received, Emmanuel, God with us. Oh, 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 that it would be our response to God's call in our life. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And we can do that. We can say that. We can respond in that way because we have Emmanuel. We're going to offer an opportunity now um, as, as the prayer team comes forward, anyone on the prayer team and elders, as they come forward, I want to offer an opportunity now. Um, if you are sitting here today and you are thinking, I, I'm not sure what my mission is. I know God 
I've been called by God, but I'm not clear on what my mission is. I would like someone to pray over me, to give me confidence that I can fulfill the mission that God has for me. I want to invite you to come down. I also want to extend an invitation. If you're here today and you don't know that you have been called by God, that you don't know that you are in a relationship with God, but you would like to be, I want to invite you to come down for prayer as well. There is, as, as, as we said in our DNA, there is no greater joy than knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And there is nothing else that will give you a purpose in life, a meaningful, all-encompassing all all purpose than surrendering your life to Jesus Christ. So we'll give you a moment as we sit quietly and reflect on, on what God is speaking to your heart.